Hello, it's Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest is director Matthew Ozawa, and we're going to be talking about how he fell in love with opera, how he began to really create his career out of the world of instrumental music and into the world of directing, his wonderful heritage, and how he gets people to, quote, play well together. Matthew, can you try and recall for me maybe your very earliest or one of your earliest memories of theater in general? Theater in general? It could be a puppet show. It could be opera. It could be any sort of theatrical performance that I you guess witnessed. my most vivid memory um, would actually be performing in the children's chorus of Carmen at San Diego Opera. And why I remember this so vividly is because I cannot see without my glasses. And I remember we were staged to do all this work with oranges and card playing. And then, you know, I think I got a drum and stood in a line and sang. And I just remember I couldn't see anything. But I remember being mesmerized <laughs> by the sound and the sort of blurry images I saw around me. And so they did not let you wear your glasses on stage? No glasses. And I was too young to have contacts. Oh, my gosh. Did you ever run into anybody or careen into the pit? You know, I just followed other kids around. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it about some of your earliest experiences that put even the glimmer of, I'd like to do this myself? Was there? Do you have some particular memory or emotional memory of, wow, this is fun. I should do this in some way? I have to say I was always sort of an arts kid. I made my parents take me to see musical theater, theater. Um, actually, once I, I kind of entered into the opera arena um, as a young kid in, in a children's chorus, um, San Diego Opera at the time bust in kids for every dress rehearsal of every opera. So wow. at a really early age, I saw Sonambula, Rusalka, Eugene Onegin, in addition to some of the standards, Rappuccini's Daughter. I do vividly remember Rappuccini's Daniel Daughter. Daniel Catan's first opera. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I will say that something that they did, which I found really impactful, was they always took the curtain out during intermission. So you could see the crew moving all the scenery around, cleaning the snow, you know, putting some you know, water and mist into the air to help kind of hydrate the stage. And that was, I think, when I knew this might be for me much further down the road because I actually went into music. I became a clarinetist. I went to Oberlin Conservatory for clarinet performance. I thought I would be in an orchestra for the rest of my life. And when I started to question that career, all of the passion and memory that I had as a kid, but also my passion for the performing arts, um, all performing arts, including dance, uh, really was the moment that I knew this probably might be a good profession for so me. So you liked, as they say, seeing them make the sausage. Yes, very, <laughs> very much. Yes. You carry a very famous last name for people who love classical music, that of the most celebrated living Japanese conductor. Right. Any relation? My dad says we are related. Mm. Way down the line. <laughs> Seiji and I have not yet met. Uh, I hope we meet mm. sooner rather than later. Um, but we, you know, it's it's sort of like the lore. I think now that that my career has progressed forward, 
the family likes to say that we are definitely linked. Um, but it's interesting because I'm actually fourth generation Japanese American. So my like father. Kent Nagano. I mean, Kent Nagano, yes. I think, is fourth or fifth Japanese American. Right, right. So my father was actually born in an internment camp at the end of World War II in Wyoming. And so what's interesting is growing up, my Japanese side of, of my heritage was sort of kind of closed. Um, I was told to be as assimilated as possible. My mom's side is fully Caucasian, so I was surrounded by Caucasian family all the time. I think it's what made walking into the arts arena not as daunting because I had both a Caucasian side and an Asian side. I lived in Asia for five years mm. where I sort of went dug into my Asian roots, but I've also always felt that I'm Caucasian simultaneously. So working in a Western art form isn't unusual or daunting for me. You know, uh, talking to children and grandchildren of, let's say, Holocaust survivors, there is a pervasive um, attitude, and we have many of these testimonies here in our Holocaust Museum in Cincinnati, where survivors really don't want to talk about it. Um, and I know that in, to, in some of the Japanese-American women and men I've known over the years, they have a similar recollection of their parents or grandparents saying, we don't want to talk about it. Same, does this apply in your family? Yes, I actually never met my grandparents mm. uh, who lost their homes to move to this internment camp. But my father recently started to unearth stories of being born in the camp as a premature baby and the stories of of his parents in the camp because I was directing an opera about the Japanese internment called An American Dream by Jack Perla wow. at Lyric Opera of Chicago. So once I knew I was directing that, he started to reveal these stories, which up until now, so many years later, he had never told me. It's amazing. And uh, he, of course, has no memory of it because he was an infant. Right, right. In, growing, did, in his growing up, did his parents talk about it at all? No. Amazing. No. And there are only three objects that remain from the family mm. through the, the um, internment, which would be cutlery, mm -hmm. silver cutlery, um, a bowl, and a woodblock uh, carving that was made uh, during their time. These then, for a future generation, take almost a totemic value, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's and each one of my siblings has one of the three items. There's a beautiful film um, called Everything is Illuminated, which is a similar story. It's fiction, of course, about a young Jewish-American man of Ukrainian heritage. Mm -hmm. And as his grandmother is dying, she gives him an insect in amber. And she says, this is all that remains of the village in which I lived until the Russian army and the Nazis came and destroyed it. And it took on a totemic value, and it animated the entire film that follows. Right. So as an opera director, I know this is a bit of a jump, but do you from time to time in, a, in an opera that you're directing find something that to which you assign totemic value that that drives a, a concept or an opera performer? I'll say that that it may not be an object per mm -hmm. se, mm -hmm. but in 
the kind of current world of Marie Kondo, where everyone is sort of downsizing and only <laughs> focusing on what brings them joy, I will say that something that is inherent in everything I direct is a sense of minimalism. Mm-hmm. And actually, the New York Times that reviewed uh, An American Soldier that I directed for Opera Theater of St. Louis last year did state, I think the first review ever to state, this fact of my artistry, which is minimalism, where I do reduce everything down. I take away props. I take away quite a lot of physical structure around singers, which I think they're used to having. And even though the elements of their performance and their interactions with one another are very realistic and filled with intention, dramatic intention, I take stuff away from them, which I think makes many people feel very vulnerable. Uh, It's highly risky in terms of collaboration, but I think it's by being vulnerable and by placing that risk on the table as an artist that it kind of changes the tone of a performance. It kind of puts them in a new new realm. And actually, I think the minimalism enables audiences to walk into productions that I direct and feel that they actually have more ownership over the experience because they're not told everything that they should be experiencing or feeling. They have to use some of their imagination in the process. But you compensate for asking them to use their imagination by creating a sense of motivation in the performers. I've noticed this in the production you've been directing for us of Romeo and Juliet, that although there is a variety of costuming, some as, quote, authentic as the time in which the original play was written, and some much more long ago and far away, and some of it no time at all kind of costuming, that these are all women and men you have directed to be as natural and real. There are no, as Boris Goldovsky used to say, with arms outstretched, come by my flowers, operatic gestures. Mm-hmm. You really work hard to create dramatic believability. How? What are the challenges of, let's say, taking something that is a very stylized composition, like Gounod's Romeo and Juliet, which has numbers, of course, right? Um, and is very much in some ways of its time. How do you, um, as it were, peel away some of the potential cliche to help your actors and singers become real? Right. I always feel that you have to root it in the now and unearth what it is about that singer that connects with the character that they're playing. So that it's not an artifice that they're presenting on stage, but that they're using their vocal prowess, they're using what is inherent within the music, aligned with what the text is saying, taking all the history that you have from Shakespeare, from previous productions, from other productions they've already done as singers, and trying to see it through a new lens and, and unearth elements for them that they may have not experienced before, because they thought they were just presenting, you know, a specific character when in reality that character are so many people that are around us or throughout history we've seen um, in the world. So it's an interesting, I mean, it's, it's something I, I, don't, I don't really usually analyze how I do it, but it is something I'm constantly doing either with new work, and with new work, you know, no one knows 
There's no tradition. Right. You have a free hand. Total free hand. But the classics, you know, I, I recently have directed a Figaro and a, and a Boheme where the performers had done the roles up, you know, as many times as 22 times. And so they had such kind of... I, won't, I don't want to say baggage, that's like the wrong term, but a huge history of how they did it, what felt good, what didn't feel good for them, which moments clicked, which experiences um, were more heightened for them. And I think sometimes it's about taking their history and mixing it with everything that I know, but also my own vision for the specificity of what the message of the piece is saying to me. So you work hard at using that to the best advantage and you don't go down that path of listening to a singer and saying well you know we did it this way when i did it in hamburg no well, that's the way you did it in hamburg right and that's what you learned there but let's take what you've learned in hamburg and apply it now to this particular chemistry right and this is an interesting experience doing this romeo and juliet here in cincinnati a similar production the production that i did in minnesota but it feels very different and in working with Nicole and Matthew on Romeo and Juliet, I have found that I am directing it differently than I did in Minnesota because of who they are, because of how I've changed. My perspective on the piece is different three years later, and I find that I will probably always do that with any production that I have that continues to get remounted. I think it's maybe... For me, not the healthiest to just do it the same way that it's always been done. I feel like that is when you kind of start to, it starts to maybe feel, elements will feel a little stale, but I like to always re-experience it and try to find what's new in it for these particular performers, this company, this time in our American history and world history, and I guess where I am as an artist. Let's spin back a little bit because... I'm talking now to a fully formed, busy director and teacher as well. How did you learn your craft? What were some of the earliest, um, as it were, inspirations and spurs and uh, stories of your early days wanting to become a director? I will say I always had passion to see everything. So I will say that in Singapore, I went to as many productions and dance performances and world theater performances as I could. I just wanted to intake. I was so hungry to experience as much as I could and to learn about as many different art forms from all cultures um, as I could intake. I even traveled to Japan, spent a month there just watching no theater, bunraku, uh, kabuki, did the same in, in Indonesia, just kind of intaked, intaked. And I, when I lived in New York only for a year, I think I saw maybe 17 to 20 shows every month. Oh my goodness. I was so thirsty for it. At the same time, I will say that the, the biggest mentor I had was someone named Jennifer Good, who's currently the managing director at San Francisco Opera. The time she was the production stage manager for the Santa Fe Opera, where I got my start mopping and sweeping and then moved into stage management. And they spotted, both her and, and Rupert Hemmings uh, at uh, Los Angeles Opera, spotted some skills of mine with regards to organization, people skills, my ability to read music, because I had a degree in, in, in music, 
they spotted those skills and actually taught me the craft of working backstage. And I will say that working backstage, working with singers and and understanding all of their needs, knowing full well that I wanted to be a director further down the road, I think really helped me as a director later on. As an OB, and there are so many so of you many, throughout the world of the profession of music, uh, did your Oberlin experience, uh, with its incredible broadness of curriculum and liberality of endeavor, how did that influence you? Because you were a clarinetist then. Was the was the directing bug already growing in you at that point? I think it was always there, and I just never quite knew until I got to Oberlin. Huh. And because of its liberal arts open nature, I was able to then walk down the path of of going into the theater department, auditioning to be an actor, which is completely a wrong profession. I knew that early on. And and Paul Moser, who was the, the head of the theater department, he was the one that spotted me there to say, you have some, some visual directing chops. You should shift into directing from acting. And because of Oberlin, I could both get a music degree, get a theater degree, also dance, because I loved dancing forever. Uh, so so it was sort of the perfect world for me. I think that for so long, I think I just wanted to go to a conservatory, only do music. But hmm. Oberlin was perfect and small enough that I could you know, try my hand at the craft early on with teachers overseeing, kind of shifting the tone of how, how I was interacting with people, which then really set me up for once I was in the profession. It's a wonderful place to make all of your mistakes, or at least yes. make some of the first ones. Yes, yes, because I, I landed my job at Lyric Opera of Chicago when I was 24. Oh my goodness. So when I became the assistant head of the directing staff at 25, that was a place where you know you could not make any mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, the stakes were so high, and so that really kind of threw me into the deep end early on. You started out your life in music uh, with an abstract art form that is made up entirely of sound. Talk a little bit, if you will, about what is the special kind of quality of sight and, you know, there's, there's hearing and listening, there is seeing and observing. And I'm wondering, what are the particular differences between seeing and observing for an opera director? Right. I like to say that the movement world that I am creating on stage should have the same musical qualities as what's happening in the score or in the music. Because I feel that when I listen to music, the sounds, the vibrations, not only spark images in my mind, but also will change my heart rate, may make me feel happier, may, may, may make me feel sadder. And it's a physical experience listening to music, especially classical music. I could sit you know, with an orchestra and just be completely in another world. And I find the same as with movement and the visual arts, moving visual arts, is that that the speed, the tempo, the shapes, the colors, all of that will make you feel certain things, can make you feel joy, can make you feel sadder, can also change the pace of you know your heart rate depending on how excited you are about what you're seeing and observing. And what I try to do is I try to align what is happening in a score with a visual world. And so I work with the designers sometimes stringently 
to help them understand that musical fabric of of what I'm seeing and sort of expecting designs to do. When you talk about movement, you direct plays as well as opera. Right. It's a different kind of requirement, is it not, for movement with speaking as opposed to movement with singing. Speak a little to that, how you how you adjust yourself in either sphere. Correct, yes. And I've also directed for ballet. I directed for the Houston Ballet, um, and I've also directed for uh, the contemporary music ensemble, Eighth Blackbird. Um, and so I, I sort of, in working in all of these different mediums, I think a lot of it is... For, for theater, a musical oral quality of the way that language is delivered, the pause or the, the space in between, the, the variations of intention that drive a specific verbal line, actually I hear as music. I don't always hear it as just words. And actually this is interesting in terms of going to Shakespeare. When Shakespeare's done poorly, I really don't hear the words. I will just hear quite a lot of sound, different inflections, maybe some overacting or underacting. <laughs> when Shakespeare's done impeccably well, the language will actually become alive and I'll start to understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And I've realized that in that facet, intention and really true acting is the thing that I, I connect to. And when it feels a little false, I suddenly don't hear hear the words or sometimes hear the music. What are some of the things you do with singers to get them out of their, it has to sound pretty, I have to have this high note while I'm standing in this position. What are some of the things you use as your toolbox to achieve this greater naturalness in them? I will say one of them is is creating a safe trusting environment, which I didn't realize I did until much further down the road. I would say one of the, the most important pieces of advice I got early on in my career was be kind to everybody. Everyone, including the person who's you know mopping and sweeping the floor all the way up, because you never know where people are going to be. And I think that in directing, or rather in assistant directing. So I've, I have assisted for some of the major directors in the world, and I've seen a gamut of like very kind directors and some real tyrants. And I realized in, in, the, in those rooms where, where directors were very tyrannical that the performers really had so much fear or angst or hatred towards their art or what they were doing because of what was being placed on them, that the end result, maybe the audience didn't quite know that it felt kind of funky, but it just didn't, it didn't, it wasn't as transcendent as it could be. And so what I find with singers is that treating them with respect, kindness, and creating a trusting environment, they become more open. Mm. And I think once they're more open, they're willing to allow you to, enable them to be vulnerable. I think it's when they have the, the, the layers or the the shell up to not be vulnerable and just sing. I think that is when you sometimes get your, you know, pizza delivery stand and sing at center experience. There's a wicked saying by some old wag, be nice to the people you beat on the way up. 
you may need them on the way down. Right. <laughs> so true. That is so true. <laughs> so as you are developing your work as uh, a director, you start out, as you said, at, as many directors do, assisting people who are more established. What was the turning point for you to be able to strike out on your own and become someone who has assisted directors? Right, right. <laughs> And it's hopefully hopefully mentoring those you know exactly. assistant directors. I you know I think there I reached a point. I had eight assistant directed thirty five shows in I think it was five years, and I knew I had really experienced and and learned as much as I could, and that I needed to be actually practicing my craft. And I think that's the hard thing for directors is that you you don't audition to get a slot to be mm. a director at a company companies need to see your work. I think the catch-22 is if you don't actually practice your work, you can't show your work or develop your craft. And so what I did do is I actually left Lyric Opera of Chicago as an assistant director and San Francisco and Santa Fe. I took a year off. That's when I started to teach. I formed a company. So I have a nonprofit called Mozawa. <laughs> that is an incubator. Yeah, yeah, modest. <laughs> that is an incubator for collaborative art and artists. And I was trying to to bring artists from all mediums together to work on the craft of collaboration and to understand how it works where there's not a hierarchy of one art form over another. And because of that company, and I think the website we created and the pictures we had, um, opera companies who who you know really we had not moved forward in terms of me being a, becoming a director. They saw this new company and people started calling me saying, "Hey, this is really interesting, and your visual aesthetic is very alluring and impactful. Will you direct an obscure, unusual opera for us?" <laughs> and that's sort of what kind of ignited opera again as a director. Um, when I was sort of directing tiny, tiny things in, in the storefront Chicago theater scene. And and so then it was nice to go back into opera, mm-hmm. which is my true passion, and to just continue to to develop and to be in a situation having worked at, at these large houses um, to, to be able to then direct for them. I think places I always wanted to. When Lyric Opera of Chicago gave me the call and said, hey, we want you to direct Nabucco in six days with a cast of 100, all of the principal artists are Russian, four of them do not speak any English, and you only have one chorus rehearsal per act. (laughs) You know, I thought this is a project runway situation either. (laughs) It's gonna make you or break you. Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness. And I was very on the fence about it. I thought this could just be the end of my career or it could be really wonderful. But I also knew that I had up until that point been working so much at this company and also at these big houses that I knew how to run a rehearsal room, be efficient, work with a large number of singers, and also work within the confines of unions and the schedule and all that sort of stuff. And I thought this is the time to to test it and to try it. You've answered uh, in your own way a question I wanted to ask you, which is the whole idea of we have this cliche with the recent passing of someone like famous like Franco Zeffirelli of the director as this auteur, this sort of more glamorous even than the singers that he directs. But in fact, you have to be a collaborator 
or something as complicated as opera will never work. Exactly. And so did you learn this early on? Was this something you observed as a clarinetist were sync playing in an orchestra or where did your own sense of collaboration develop? I would say the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Because being a clarinetist you sit right in the middle of the orchestra. And you are constantly in tune with not only the woodwind section, but everyone around you in making that music, in being, you know, on pitch, in making sure your sixteenth note aligns with maybe, you know, a violinist who's who's pretty far away. And that unification of people through one person, I think, was the start of it. But what I think I've always been questioning and and trying to figure out is what true collaboration actually is. And I think that I've come to realize that, I guess my, you know, the image that I use is that of creating origami. When you're creating origami, you're folding your your square piece of paper many, 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 many times in different ways and folding and unfolding it to make a shape. I like to think of collaboration as as bringing a group of people together where you don't know what that shape is going to be, but each person is responsible for creating folds in on that sheet of paper. And over time, those folds, when really good collaboration happens, will create the most magnificent, magnificent origami. When it's not great collaboration, people then will fold over other people's or not take into consideration what the objective might be in the end. I think that the idea of one person having power over everybody actually doesn't necessarily serve the art or make the best art. You've talked a little bit about some of the elements of your job, and the more I think about being a director, it's a little bit like uh, managing a Rubik's Cube, because it's not just uh, uh, vertical and horizontal. There's so many things in between that go to making the, the final product. If you were to have to make something of a grocery list, let's say, of uh, attributes someone aspiring to be an opera director needs, what would be a few of them? Passion and drive, patience, interpersonal skills, courage. Because I have to say there are oftentimes where being a director, you start to doubt your own artistry. Mm depending on if you feel it's going well or not going well. Um, a lot of heart, I think, that sometimes that I've seen experiences where when you don't have heart and it becomes more clinical, or if you are just telling singers, go here, go there. Then you're a traffic cop. Right, right, right. Intelligence, <laughs> you know, it does, and, and, you know, and I, it's interesting because I never analyze how I do it. But people constantly are saying to me that that I tend to not pinpoint a decision until I fully feel that that's the decision to make. So I like to have lots of options, which is which is a big thing in theater with actors. But in opera, I think there's a little sometimes less option. Time is a little more truncated, and and so that kind of malleability. I think is really, really key is in the sense that I ask a lot of questions to a lot of different people. I gauge as much information about what how other people see it. Again, the folding in the origami, how are they 
sensing that origami should be folded. And once I get as much information as I can, then that will ignite my intuition and the decision. You are in your first visit with Cincinnati Opera directing a work that is over 140 some odd years old. Um, There are probably 20 performances of it on YouTube. There are probably 50 commercial recordings, if not more. There are photographs and articles about every Romeo and Juliet under the sun. Um, Do you take any of that into account when you're preparing yourself? Early on. Uh Uh-huh. Very, very early on, in the sense that I like to understand the history of where it's where that piece has, has so been So scroll before. forward to a work that is brand new. All you have is the score, a collaboration with the composer and the librettist. How do you prepare something that no one's ever seen or heard right, before? Right, which I find so exciting. Visual imagery is a huge part of my process. Mm-hmm. And so I'll tend to... A, have long discussions with the composer and librettist about their inspirations, about why they chose the subject matter, specificity on how they hear the music, or how they're creating the poeticism behind their words. Mm -hmm. And once I have that information, in addition to what the story is about, I'll then do tons of visual research, either at the library or in books or online. And it's a great thing to now have you know, easy access to visual images. And I will compile a Dropbox account of visual images in different categories and then start to piece them together. And I have found that the visual images will actually start to dictate the colorations and the tone of what the production will end up being. When you work with an artist, whether it's a singer or an actor, what are a couple traits that you find really ignite your desire to help them do their very best? What do you see in performers sometimes that say, I'm going to kill myself to get this soprano or this actor to give what they don't even know they have inside them yet? Right. I will say a willingness and openness. Mm -hmm. But what I also really, really value is their their true thoughts on the character and on specific moments. I find that, and this is, I also teach this at the university with my students, is that when they come to the table with nothing, no thoughts, they know the music, but there's nothing else, I actually find that so impossible as a director to work with. It's, it's like molding wet, sand so it just doesn't it's not going to become anything because there's nothing there yeah it's not going to stick together but i actually find that when singers come to the table already with their own perceptions on their character on their scenes on the piece that will inspire me to see things in new ways Mm -hmm. because they may see it in a different way than i see it and then it's a matter of of figuring out for, again, this time, this production, these people, which version feels good. And and I find that when I am inspired by them and their ideas, they get inspired by mine. And ultimately, I, also, I have found that the true ending point that we end up for our performances is neither of the ideas. Usually there's a third idea that appears further down the road. When they've tried their idea, they tried my idea, we've been kind of batting back and forth Sometimes it will click, sometimes it doesn't click, and it's way further down the road as they've been mulling it over, they've gone through the whole show, and suddenly they say, "Uh, 
this is it. This is the idea. This I, I can I please try this? We try it, and suddenly it's it's even better than either one of us could have imagined. So you have an interesting situation with the Romeo and Juliet you have directed for us. Your Juliet, Nicole Cabell, is a very experienced performer of the role. She's probably sung it seven or eight or nine or ten different productions in a period of stretching back, I think now, at least 13 years. Your Romeo has done it once before and in a conservatory atmosphere. Matthew White, brand new in our profession, very exciting young singer, and in the very nicest sense of the word, kind of green still. So what's your approach with the with the established vet and the eager newcomer? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's good that I've been working at a university with a lot of green singers because I think it helps me understand their process, what they know or don't know, and I can kind of help shape that, bring them to the next level to be with someone like Nicole who's done it so many times. On the same token, I find Nicole is such a fabulous performer and artist and person to work with. She's so kind. And so she also is willing to listen and experience something anew. And for example, because this production is so dreamlike, there are elements that she, for example, the bedroom scene where she thought, huh, is this gonna work when it's just a sheet? Mm-hmm. You know, descending from the floor that's on the floor and there's no bed, no actual physical bed. Because I think she's had a physical bed in every version she's ever done. And she was really, really con- con- worried or questioning it. Matthew, of course, was like, didn't really know if wh- how it would be or play out. And I will say the two of them, maybe because there was no bed, no physical anything for them, you know, stripped it all away. They were literally like came completely both green to the table hmm. because it didn't match anything that they had done or perceived of. But we kept all their intentions in ways they had already played the roles, both for, for Matthew at AVA and, and for Nicole the many numerous times. And it was interesting how, how we could find and, and take their history of performance, but find something so new for the two of them purely by the fact that there was no physical bed on stage for them. I am reminded of a beautiful production of the original Schiller play Don Carlos in an English translation that I saw in London a few years ago with Derek Jacobi. And the set had no furniture. Mm. It was just a very tall prison cell with a grated window at the top. The costumes, like in this production that Sarah Barr has designed for us, were spectacular. And there was one prop and one scenic element, wow. which was a lantern that swung back and forth. Wow. So that's a Matthew Ozawa concept, <laughs> yes, if ever there was yes. one. But what I noticed in that play production is similar to what you're talking about right now with this deeply experienced actor, Derek Jacoby, and some very young women and men, all you know, full of the vim and vigor of 20-somethings, um, and the incredible energy that went back and forth between the established performer and the newcomers. Right, right. And it must be a very exciting thing for you as an opera director to engage with people who have done the role before and give them that aha moment. Because we can, as professionals, sometimes be too professional and say, as you have said earlier in this conversation, just show me where to stand. 
I'll take care of the rest. That's not the way you work. Mm-mm. 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 I really rail against that. What people do say to me, just tell me where to go. I'm like, mm-mm. No, we don't do that. We not don't in the do Ozawa that. workshop. No, no. But then if I say, where do you want to go? Then they just go center. So <laughs> then I have to. And downstage. Right, downstage center. <laughs> For the so, aria. Right, 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 right. So you have directed a great variety of works now. Um, have you contemplated having Japanese heritage tackling the thorny issue of butterfly. You know, what's so interesting is I think I've now directed two butterflies, the Mm -hmm. most recent at Santa Fe Opera. And it is a piece that I will say for years I never wanted to direct. It's something I never felt I related to or could connect to. And the more I dig into it, the more I love it and the more I want to do it. Um, and I have found working with butterflies who have done so many butterflies, such as Anna Maria Martinez and Kelly Caduce, that they have said to me that that just being in the room with me directing butterfly, they find that my movement style, my own personality and way of working actually helps them figure out and have find elements of butterfly that they've never, ever, ever experienced before. And do you think... I mean, you're, as you say, you're a fourth-generation Japanese-American, but do you think the it's the DNA that bubbles to the surface? I do. I do. I think some of my DNA is just very Japanese. Yeah. I didn't think that for a long time. And there's huge parts of me that are American. Mm. But I do. I think there's some inherent aspects of the way that I observe or interact or move that are very Japanese. And I will say that the piece... I have chatted with many companies about cultural appropriation and about how we're moving a piece like Butterfly into the next generations and how we're how how we tell that story now, what aspects of the story can kind of be offensive, of course, which aspects are really Japanese and which ones are not, and and what it means to to cast the show. I think that everyone is currently struggling with, you know, do, does 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 the casting of an Asian work have to be that only Asians perform it, or can it be, you know, colorblind casting? Or you know, I think people are are struggling with those specific pieces, such as Stern Dot, Pearl Fishers, and and Butterfly. I had a fascinating conversation. It really wasn't a conversation; it was a diatribe um, <laughs> with a, a well-known Chinese-born opera producer, who said. I don't want to see Asian people doing butterfly because it's a white Italian male's fantasy based on another white Caucasian right. man's fantasy right. of an Italian opera. Mm-hmm. It's about as Japanese as my thumb. Right, right. And the Japanese the Japaneserie or the is is all applied. Uh, she says what I want is truth-telling in the story itself. And you could set it, she went so far as to say, set it on Mars, and it will will still be powerful. But please don't placate me with, by casting a Chinese soprano, because there are so many great lyric and spinto Chinese soprano, even casting a Chinese soprano to sing a Japanese role Mm -hmm. offends me. Right. So don't try. So where do you fall in that? I mean, it's a, it's a, it was quite a revelatory conversation for me because in my time here, we have produced Butterfly 
twice. Once with a Chinese soprano, uh, Yuli, fantastic singer, and once with an Italian soprano, Maria Luigia Borsi. Um, and we will probably do it again in the future, and um, and we will have to engage with this with this question, right? And so it sounds like you've you've come to some really good conclusions for yourself as a Japanese American and as a director how you want to approach the piece. I do. I think it, I agree in the sense that it is about the storytelling. It is about the interpretation, and I find that people often actually sometimes neglect the power that a director has in the telling of a story. That when a director has only gone to a tea ceremony, you know, there's an element of if, if they are coming to it from a sort of blank place and expecting people to kind of pretend to be Japanese in kimonos, that is when it starts to feel really offensive and when it becomes cultural appropriation. I find that for me, Yes, I do not need necessarily an Asian singer in the role at all by any stretch, but to then expect them to to move like someone who's Japanese or understand the culture, the inherent culture that is sort of unspoken from someone who doesn't understand the culture, then there's a level of artifice on it where the storytelling is not true. Mm-hmm. And yes, you could strip it all away. As Robert Wilson did in his famous or infamous production that I saw at Los Angeles Opera, which could have been set on another planet. Right. And and something that I, you know, I have watched that production, I think it was one of the few productions that I liked, was because of the minimalism and because of the slow movement and the, the, the cleanliness of it. It actually felt very Japanese, although no one on the stage was Asian. And it felt very timeless in a way that I, that was one of the few productions I gravitated towards and actually liked. Hmm. So you come to the end of the rehearsal process and uh, you have to, as it were, send your child out into the world. They have to fend for themselves at a certain point when the curtain goes up and the baton comes down. Before the opening night, do you walk around and give your singers one last bit of encouragement. What, what's your what's your MO on opening night with your singers and conductor? I write them very heartfelt cards. I always come around and, and say toy, 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 and wish them the best. And just, in, yes, encouragement, I think, is the best protocol. I'm never, I actually, I, I always tell my assistants that I'm, I'm an unusual director in the sense that as the process continues, I start to take away notes, rather not give as many. So by the time we hit opening, I usually don't have any notes to give because I think it's good to sort of let your bird fly without holding on to it, especially when you're going to leave as a director and you want them to have ownership over it. You want to give them the ability to continue to, to grow in the piece, but within the parameters that I've set. And I think that in allowing them to, to be free, setting those parameters, it's it's interesting how I, yeah, I find only encouragement on opening night is what's needed. No notes. <laughs> no notes. Let them soar. You've also uh, taken uh, a path that a lot of directors don't take uh, and still maintain an active career. You've entered the world of teaching yourself. How did that come about? You're teaching at the University of Michigan. I am. I'm a professor uh, at the University of Michigan. How did that come about? How did that come about? Uh, 
actually, I got a call that said there's a position opening up at the University of Michigan. You should apply. And I was very, very hesitant. Mm -hmm. I had taught at DePaul University in Chicago and North Park University as an uh, adjunct where I just taught one course. I found that I loved that process. And I, 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 you know, of course, directing and being freelancing was is really one of my key passions. But I have always found that working with young artists, working with the Ryan Opera Center, uh, uh, young artists at Lyric or the Adlers or Marilla at San Francisco or the young artists in Santa Fe, I actually loved young artists and people who were starting out, figuring out who they were as artists, what their voices, um, and empowering them to work on their own craft in acting and movement was as important as all the vocal work that they were doing. And many of them told me that they weren't getting as much acting and movement support or training in their schools as they hoped when they walked into the field. And so I've realized in walking down the path of applying for the job in Michigan and actually getting it, that I'm a big proponent of, of helping that next generation be as prepared as possible, understanding all the nuances of acting and, and movement to be better colleagues and collaborators in a rehearsal room, matching all the work that they're doing vocally to be, you know, the next superstar. <laughs> um, so I have, I, I do love it. I do love it. It's very different. It's very, very, very different. I, I find that I'm really best teaching the youngest kids, the undergrads, who have never done anything in basic acting and movement, and then I'm fabulous with the most advanced grads and doctoral students moving them into the industry. But that place in the middle where they have learned, they have, what is it, have just enough knowledge to be dangerous is right. kind of a treacherous ground is, for you. Yeah, it makes me a little nervous. I do well <laughs> with it, but it, it's it's one of those things because at that point right in the middle, I feel every word, every action, every assignment they're given really is important in how it is going to shape their future. And many of them, you know, and I find this also important, many of them end up not wanting to become opera singers or going down that path. They love singing, they love music, they love the arts. And so in terms of empowering them, understanding who they are as a human being, how they interact with the world, I find those skills are invaluable for any profession they go into in their life in general. You find yourself now in the early high noon of your directing career. Uh, you've directed a lot of operas, both on your own as well as reviving others and earlier on just assisting other directors, you must have your own bucket list of things that you want to tackle next. Or if, if, you ran, if you ran the candy store, what would be your next, what would be your next production? Yes, I find the operas I most wanting to do, no one is doing. Oh. <laughs> I well, guess, the Frauenschatten is very expensive. Yes, that would be on the bucket list. <laughs> I have worked on one, and that would be on the bucket list. Uh, of course, The Rake's Progress by Stravinsky, Turn of the Screw by Britain. For some weird reason, I'm very fascinated by that. Uh, Tandon, it's a ghost story. It's a ghost story. It's really riveting. Uh, because I saw a production, a, a play of Turn of the Screw as a kid, I think it freaked me out. So I think I've always wanted to do that <laughs> opera. Um, Tandon's Marco Polo, I've always wanted to do. Huh. Um, and then I always, be, 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 besides new work, which I think really, really excites me, um, 
I always love pieces that maybe are not necessarily an opera, but seeing how they could be staged or performed. Hmm. Oratorios, uh, song cycles. I think there's a lot of interesting things to say with those works. So your palette, as it were, is one that it seems to also embrace the way that our art form is evolving because the conversation, particularly in our own country here in these days, is a redefinition of what the word opera means. It mm-hmm. goes everything from a soldier song, monodrama, all the way up to a, a grand opera like John Corleano's Ghost of Versailles, which right. is about as grand and modern opera as you get, uh, and so many different things in between. Does that also for you encompass musical theater? Have you tried your hand at that too? Yes, because I have been a part of, uh, I guess, the the bringing of musical theater into the opera house. <laughs> so at Lyric Opera of Chicago, I worked on uh, Carousel, which because they have sort of the American musical theater kind of cycle, or rather performance that they do once a year in the summer or kind of late at the late, end of the late spring. Late yep. spring. And so I assist and directed on on Carousel and then remounted My Fair Lady for them the following year, uh, eight shows a week. And it's a mixture of musical theater performers, theater performers, and opera singers. Mm-hmm. And I find that it's, it's sort of incredible and riveting seeing them all interacting and working together. And those pieces, I find the ones that, of course, that have heftier amounts of music and singing more exciting than ones that, that where the, the music is sort of maybe not immaterial, but just not as present. Um, Sondheim, I, I actually I have a production of A Little Night Music with uh, costume designs that, by Isaac Mizrahi, the fashion designer, that started in St. Louis. I've now taken it to Houston, and it's a production that I absolutely adore. Um, it's a masterpiece, too. Oh, it is. It is. It is such incredible words. The music is so crisp and so difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I directed a production of Sweeney Todd that won the best production, best musical theater production of the year in Milwaukee a couple years ago. And I just found the experience so kind of profound, uh, not only by how difficult the music was when I didn't think it was going to be so difficult for everybody, but also how game everyone was to just play with those pieces. So I do love those. So your as well. aesthetic of collaboration continues across the spectrum whatever whatever aspect of our larger art form you tackle. That's true. So we always ask our guests the same questions at the end uh, okay. to provide our listeners <laughs> okay. with a common denominator. And you can take a pass on any <laughs> okay. of them if either they're embarrassing or don't apply. Okay. All right. Okay, I'm ready. What do you usually have for breakfast? Oatmeal with banana. How do you deal with stress? Oh, gosh. Meditation and exercise. Who was your most important mentor? Oh, I think I mentioned her earlier, Mm -hmm. Jennifer Good, the Mm -hmm. managing director at San Francisco Opera. What are you reading right now? Oh, I am reading American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Hmm. It was turned into, I think, a TV series, but Mm -hmm. it's a really fabulous book. Do you follow any particular television series or podcast yourself? Too many. <laughs> Too many. I know, which is funny because I'm I, I, you know, not really the most tech-savvy person. But mm-hmm. currently I'm watching Dark on Netflix, mm-hmm. a German series, which is fabulous. Do you find one phone app or another particularly useful to you? 
no, <laughs> no, I'm not really, again, I'm, I'm not really good with technology, so I don't really use apps. I guess the email app on the phone because of all the Uber, work I have to do. To Uber, time. yes, from time to time. The weather app to see, like, if it's going to be raining in Cincinnati, you know. It has been for the entire time you've been here. Sadly. It's been a little wild, but yes. Speaking of Cincinnati, I know we've kept you very, very busy, as we keep every artist who is here, because our, our, our time is always compressed. But have you discovered something in this visit to Cincinnati? Are there uh, a place to eat, uh, a place to go, something that you didn't think was going to be here that you found enjoyable? Yes, you know, there, you guys will know, there is a bridge at the Ohio River right between the, the ballparks. Is it the Ro- Roadburg? The Roebling. Roebling. It's a suspension bridge. I have been kind of obsessed with that suspension bridge, and I think because no one can drive on it. So right you can, now. Right now. So you can walk on it, and it's just, it's so beautiful to just see see the structure, to be on the structure, to see it from afar. And also that Ohio uh, River Trail right by the suspension bridge is incredible. There are these swings. Yes. That I just, I love those swings. Turns it into, it turns you into a five-year-old again. Yes, yes, looking at the river. It's fabulous. So the Roebling Bridge was built in 1867. Wow. And Roebling is the man who designed and built the Brooklyn Bridge. This is an early model for the Brooklyn Bridge. Gotcha. And Roebling Sr., who designed and supervised the building of this bridge, was unable to see the Brooklyn Bridge through to completion because he suffered a stroke and was paralyzed. His son finished the Brooklyn Bridge, but Roebling had a perch, I forget on which side of the river, a high window where he was able to look out and watch that creation be created. But he built this one. Wow. Yeah, sort of, we, we like to call it the, the model for the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the same, same theories of suspension, Amazing. which were then brand new. Right. Um, you seem to be a, a man who's heard a lot of good advice and taken a lot of it to heart because you've worked with so many wonderful people. But is there one particular piece of advice? I know you said something earlier about that, but is there a particular piece of advice you've received that you'd like to pass on to others? That is a good question. I always find I'm a man of, like, fortune cookie (laughs) advice. (laughs) Do your laundry. I know, I know. Make your bed. (laughs) Right. Eat your veggies. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, you know, I think the the advice that I was given about being kind to everyone, I think really stuck stuck with me. Again, because, yeah, she said, you never know where anyone's going to end up in the field. Treat everyone with respect. Do you have a favorite performing artist outside the world of classical music and opera? Oh, gosh. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but Beyonce. I nothing do love em- her. <laughs> There's nothing embarrassing. She's so fierce. And her music videos, I mean, the, her visual world and her aesthetic, I think, is so powerful and and clear, crisp, Take brings so many, you know, it's an amalgamation, again, of collaboration of, of so many art forms and history uh, that I just, yeah, I admire her very much. What is your argument when you're trying to convince someone to give opera a try for the first time? Why not? I mean, I, I, I'm always like, got to try everything once to know if you like it or don't like it. So just go. Just go because you may end up loving it. You know, if you have a prejudice against it, go, 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 go. And, I mean, with something like Romeo and Juliet, which is, you know, the most famous love story imaginable, you know, who doesn't want to experience that? 
Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>